uh, he found this game Tetris, and he's like, oh my god, we have to get this game. So he called Nintendo, and he goes, we gotta get this game. And he goes, well, who owns it? And he goes, oh, the government of the Soviet Union. <laughs> so they're like, well, we can't help you. Hey, it's Engineering Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm Brian. And I'm Mike. Welcome back for another Hang in the Laboratory. Thank you for joining us. And special thanks, as always, to our supporters who help keep the lights on at the laboratory by throwing us as little as a buck a month. I almost said an episode because that's how it used to be, but uh, it goes monthly now, so buck a month. Uh, if you want to throw in help out over there, you can go to support.zengineeringpodcast.com. Strong. So you've seen it in the title. Uh, you heard the third voice. So we also get to thank uh, Mike Rosolio for joining us for another episode as uh, our guest. Hi, guys. Continuing to be the record-setting guest. Yeah, you come yes. back just frequently enough to maintain your lead by one for <laughs> yeah, guest appearances. I'm that's how floyd mayweather did it floyd mayweather was always like oh really so someone else made more money than me this minute well i'm gonna come in instead and charge 40 million dollars for this and nothing's gonna happen during the fight damn those strategically what's what's the word i'm looking for he's better at technical boxing than everyone else it's like i'm just gonna dodge all your shit and it's like yeah. it's boxing with no punches. <laughs> well, you realize you realize like how the scoring works it's, it's like it's like uh, james holzhauer on jeopardy he's like oh this is what's actually happening right now, and everyone believed him. And at that point, you go, oh, fine. <laughs> now, now I understand what you're actually doing. All this other stuff is for show. It's just about scoring points. So as we've introduced before, but in case people haven't tuned into previous episodes, Mike is an old, dear friend of ours and a, a screenwriter professionally, although we uh, continue to have no desire to talk about that aspect mm -mm. of uh, our <laughs> lives. So that's not what we're here for. Uh, what we are here for is a continuing exploration in our series on video games. And I think we might've even mentioned uh, you, Mike, yeah. in our previous episode. I can probably. Uh, the, if I did, if, if you did come up, it was in this context, but I'll reintroduce it. Uh, forever through our childhood, Mike, you have been better than me at video games. It was like, we would go to your house to play Mortal Kombat in the basement, and I'd be like, okay, I'm just going to rotate through getting clobbered by Mike, because he knows all the codes, and like, he's, he just, you were next level compared to like literally everyone else. It wasn't just me. I mean, I'm, I'm, all, I'm, all for, characters. Yeah. I'm for sure at the lower <laughs> level of the stack, but like, I just button mash, and you're, you're, you were you knew the combos. Well, I recall, I recall in the fighting games, especially it was like the, uh, and you know, corporal punishment is always a rife place for comedy, but it's basically like the old, uh, the old child abuse, um, go pick your switch version of things where it's like, you know what, pick, pick what character I'll be. I'll be Zangief. I don't care. Zangief is totally. impossible, but I'll still absolutely house you with it. What's funny is that I was, I was really, really good up until it became a profession. Because, like, seriously, it was, it was like 10 years ago, I would be on one of these Overwatch teams. I would live in Seoul. Uh, I, I would be probably a, a lot more interesting and, and definitely bilingual at this point. Um, 
and, and I would I would definitely, definitely, definitely not have to do anything resembling work ever other than just play games all day. Um, which is probably what it must have been like if you were like a baseball player in 1870, where it's like, I'm really good at baseball. Money doing this, who would make money doing it? Everyone's like, what's that? It's <laughs> a great yeah. perspective. Um, I do have a distinct uh, memory, though, to, to kind of take it for a moment to all of our youths. Um, uh, Adam had this projector he was the only person that we knew had a projector for his television and it was it wasn't fancy but it was just you know it was just spectacular yeah (laughs) so (laughs) i was playing uh a current of time um which i'm sure we'll get lots of mentions in the in the in the comments about whether it's ocarina ocarina or ocarina i was playing the zelda on nintendo 64 and um i knew something was up and I knew I was like getting close to the end. And so I basically invited myself over to your house and said, I want to plug this into your big screen because someone's about to go bad. <laughs> and so my memory of, of the first uh, the first fight between the Ganondorf fight and then the Ganon fight, which in like the lore of video games, that thing in that game is like uh, an all-time face melter. I saw it in like, like, like a hundred inch screen. <laughs> Just projected onto a giant <laughs> blank wall in your house, and it was like there's almost no other way to experience that. Amazing. The, so, so I think the the interesting, like, you know, in terms of the video game conversation, I think that's it's like the introduction for our sort of histories of video games that Brian and I have covered earlier. But I feel like we should hit it with you, Mike, first. Like, what's your what's your what's your What's your like first video game memory? Ah, my first video game memory. So I remember getting. And you're like weird because you remember shit from when you were like six months old. I do remember I everything. Know. Yeah. So the first. <laughs> so what's interesting is the, the first video game memory. Boy, this is gonna be weird, guys. Um, was probably I got we got a Nintendo for Christmas. It was like the present for my brother and I because back then they were like I think they were like two hundred bucks, but like to buy anything for kids that was two hundred dollars is like you might as well just light money on fire. Um, and we got an, a NES that came prepackaged with, um, with, uh, this like sort of like three set of games. It was, um, Mario, Duck Hunt, and then world-class track meet and world-class track meet had this like power pad that you would run on. Oh yeah. Uh, and I ended up leaving it at James Fonalou's house, I think like <laughs> after graduation. But anyway, um, the funny thing though, is that the first game I played was actually Mega Man 2. Because my parents, my parents got me this, and my uncle got me one extra game, which is Mega Man Two. And Mega Man Two is interesting because it was nonlinear. And if you recall the way that game worked, it was like oh, you go yeah. to each of these different worlds. And the premise of the game was that uh-huh. Doctor Wily had built these robots, and you had to defeat all the robots and then go fight Doctor Wily. And the, and the genius of the game was that you really couldn't finish certain ones. I shouldn't say that. You could finish certain levels without having done others previously, but they were a lot harder. And so in a way, part of the game was to figure out what's the missing piece from this level that I might be able to find somewhere else. And so you would have like, and I'm going to mix up which ones are which, but there's there's like Crash Man and there was uh, Bubble Man and there was like uh, Quick Man was like the really fucking cool one. Uh, heat man flash heat man. man yeah, yeah you had wood man air man right. had, uh, but the, so i remember I the satisfaction the in figuring out although when i th- what as i say it now it's like obviously you stupid kid uh <laughs> like uh wood if you beat metal man first 
you could then slaughter Woodman right. with the buzzsaw <laughs> weapon yeah. that, you, that you got by beating Metal Man. The others didn't make as much sense. Well, that one was real obvious. So in Mega Man 3, and, and we'll have to decide whether this stays in the podcast, in Mega Man 3, the dumbest one was Top Man, who was just basically a giant dreidel-looking guy. And his, his move was completely useless, except in the very final boss fight, if you did Top Man right in, the bat, in, in Dr. Wily's machine's face, it exploded in one hit. It was like your ultimate, like, uh, it, was like it was like Chekhov's gun. It was Chekhov's top. It's like, why is this top in this game? Oh, it's just to do this thing at the very end. Um, but yeah, that do you have a, do you ever have a subscription to Nintendo Power? Oh yeah, I did. Absolutely, <laughs> man. That was a great magazine. Nintendo Power. That's where you learned things like that. Well, yeah, but not only that, Nintendo Power is interesting because they they were the first magazine for video games for sure, and it started off as a marketing technique to sell individual games. Like what they would do is they would prepackage games that didn't sell well enough, like Dragon Quest, and they would prepackage it with the with basically this magazine, and they realized the magazine started rolling. All these people involved with the magazine got super famous. There's a guy named Howard Phillips, who um, worked in the mail in like the, the the loading dock of Nintendo of America. Just this kind of normal guy who loved video games, and he became what they called the game master because he knew all the moves. And so, okay, you know all the moves. We got to tell people the moves. So he had this tip line where you'd call him, and he'd be like, "Oh yeah, you got to do this, this, this here." It's like calling your friend at home to say, "How do I beat this guy?" And then eventually, he ended up in a, in a comic book character in Nintendo Power called Howard and Nestor. And he was Howard. And in 1990, this is actually a real stat that I, I heard. In 1990, um, the Q rating, which back then like determined essentially how famous you were, he was as famous as Madonna in 1990. What? And more famous than Mario. He's more recognizable as that. Um, wow. So Nintendo Power really was something that like kind of changed the equation in, in terms of video games cultural impact on uh, on the world i'm uh, i'm looking at the wikipedia article for uh for nintendo power right now it apparently stopped being published in 2012 but has now a podcast that reemerged two years ago yeah so the, nintendo the, power is in the wow. podcast the thing about nintendo power especially was nintendo power was indicative of how nintendo sort of operated in general in that they they controlled everything they controlled all the information about their games there's no like independent journalism really of them there were, there were magazines but but nintendo wouldn't give them access to anything so yeah. it was like they were able to present exactly what they wanted to their massive massive audience all at once and nintendo power was really kind of integral to that so i think there's there's a there's an element to get to ultimately uh, that Mike, that you wanted to talk about that has to do with, you know, game design and sort of ties into that piece you were talking about, sort of like the emotional component yeah. and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But before that, I kind of want to hit like, there's an interesting, there's an interesting aspect of the whole thing that kind of, it, it's like, uh, and, and part of uh, Brian and I talked about in the last episode in terms of like, sort of there's, there's a technological limitation aspect of this where, you know, they could only do so much. So they're for sure limited in terms of like, here's, here's the story we can tell. Here's how like vastly cinematic or whatever it could be. And they were consistently just maxing out the tech that they had. But then there's also these funny, it's like, I can't remember exactly the story and you might know it about, I, th I think it was Mega Man three. Like, sometimes those weird there like there's also this cultural aspect there right so there's a limitation of technology but then there's also this weird thing where 
most of these games are coming out of Japan at the time. And I remember there being aspects of Mega Man that like I thought were weird at the time. And I, I later would go look into it and be like, oh, that's actually a product of this Japanese cultural phenomenon with which we would not be particularly familiar. I remember that I, I think it was I think maybe Crash Man is uh, an aspect of that. Mm. Top Man was similar. It's like it's like a weird lost in translation thing totally. where I remember hearing the Japanese version of the backstory for Crash Man <laughs> and then going, oh. Yeah, that does totally make sense. I always thought it was weird as a kid, but... <laughs> yeah, a great example of that also is in... Um, and we're jumping around a little bit in time, but Sonic 2. Uh, Sonic 2 had a sidekick named Tails, and Tails was a <laughs> fox with two tails. Um, and I always thought it was like, oh, they just invented a thing, because you're a kid, and you're like, everything's imaginary, you can make things up. But Tails is a kitsune, which is a uh, mythological creature in Japan that's a fox with two tails. And so it's not just this weird thing they thought would be cool to kind of throw together <laughs> that, that that people would bug out in their, in like their parents' basement, but it's actually related to that. And I think that a lot of the early origins of, especially Nintendo, but we, I mean, we can go all the way up to now. Uh, a lot of it does come from, uh, from Japanese art and Japanese mythology and also Japanese philosophy. I mean, you know, we could jump into the, the, the main guy whenever you want, but um, it, 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 like they, they came up with this, this kind of art. I'm calling it art because it looked and felt totally different from everything else. Even totally. though it's still a game, it looked a lot different. And that's one of the reasons why the, there are enduring images even now uh, of that time and of those games and kind of bringing like manga and almost a little bit like Kurosawa filmmaking to totally. tiny little pixels on screen. Like, do you ever play, uh, like, Ninja Gaiden, for example? Yeah. Ninja Gaiden, everyone look up the introduction, the, the cinematic introduction to Ninja Gaiden. It is, it's basically the battle between Kyuzo uh, and the, uh, the, the the drunk guy in Seven Samurai. It's it's very, <laughs> like, cinematic. It's, it's like, tense. And it's just, like, it's it's eight bits, okay? This is, like, garbage. <laughs> this is, like, this is, like, pain. <laughs> This is like painting, uh, like painting a like the Mona Lisa, like in ch in chalk on your sidewalk, and yet you still recognize what it is because it was such a powerful and interesting image. This intro Ninja Gaiden is so specifically what you're talking about. There's there's another story I want to hit real quick just because it's funny, but then but then I think I think I got away into the ultimate topic we're chasing. Do you? And I bet you know this one off the top of your head, so I'm curious to hear you tell it. Okay. Do you know the the story of how Mario Super Mario Brothers two ended up so aesthetically so different from what was laid out in the first one? I, I do. Do you know the answer? Are you is it, is it a quiz or I, I think so. Curious? Yeah. Okay. But but I'm just curious to hear your. I bet your version is more in depth than my vague understanding of. It might not. It, be. Basically, it comes down to they designed another. So like you know, there's a very particular aesthetic to Super Mario Brothers that I think everyone is familiar with, the original. The second one is completely different. And my understanding of how it ended up that way is basically they designed a game that they would eventually release as the Lost Levels, and they decided it was too hard for American audiences. So they changed the character sprites in another existing game and released that as Super Mario Brothers 2 instead. Yeah, and, and, um, and like they turned, it was basically like a mom, a father, and then a baby and a like tall boy. <laughs> and they turned the baby into Toad, and the tall boy is the princess. 
and they basically just drew over it. One thing I'll tell you on that that's kind of fun, and I think a lot of people will know this, but I don't know if you guys do, the origins of, of where Mario's aesthetic came from, the original Mario Brothers character. So uh, Shigeru Miyamoto, who's going to come up a lot during this conversation, wanted it was a was a genius game maker, and and even like uh, like before Nintendo started doing home consoles, this is like arcade time. It was him and a guy named Doug. He is what people consider to be the 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 Jim Henson, the Walt Disney of of, uh, of Japan. Cool. And um, back in the day, he had an idea for a game that was basically a port. Of, he was like tasked to make a port of uh, Popeye, and the idea was the character Bluto would throw shit at uh, Popeye as Popeye tried to get past these levels and, and these things, basically go save olive oil, right? So you can't do that. You can't just go make a Popeye game without it being cool with the Popeye people. <laughs> and um, and it wasn't. And back then, Nintendo didn't win lawsuits, although they would later. Um, so they weren't allowed to make Popeye. So they said, all right, well, what do we do? Well, let's just change them. So they made Bluto an ape. And they changed the color of olive oil's hair from black to blonde. Uh, and then they gave um, they gave Popeye a mustache because they couldn't change his face well enough to in, in the pixels. They just drew a thing in his face, like a mustache, and it became Donkey Kong. It was supposed to be a Popeye game, huh. and no way. they basically drew over it, which is where they got the idea curve to do that with um, with uh, Mario Two. Well, and so I think. You know, the interesting thing in that is it, like, and the reason it lines up with the technology and then kind of even that piece is like so much of this is just, it's not just that they came up with brilliant stories and brilliant characters that still resonate for us today. But like part of it is just the weird connect, connect the dotsness of that sort of like, okay, uh, this is a hacked together solution to get yeah. this game out so people can start playing it. And then they took that momentum and then sort of turned it into this, this other, other piece. Um, and I think that the, you know, the super Mario brothers two story sort of illustrates that, but to, to jump ultimately into the sort of broader topic that Mike, you suggested, and I'll let you introduce, uh, frankly, because it has words <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce in it. Um, <laughs> uh, I want to start from the sort of the personal slot. Like what's your first, what's your favorite, you know, I mean, I, I we can go with the full span of of you know characters, but I know the ones that resonate for me are the sort of earlier childhood ones. Like, what's your favorite video game character or narrative or like? Oh boy, okay, so there's two of them. So you know, uh, one dovetails a little more nicely into the conversation about. Um, can you still hear me? Okay, you still sound okay. Sure, again. Okay, one yeah. uh, one is a little more specific, like to the larger conversation about games and feeling and all that. But let's say from story perspective, the the unassailable best story in a video game is Final Fantasy VI. And it was released here as Final Fantasy III. It is, it is, in, it is utterly insane for one thing. It, from a narrative standpoint, it has every single twist in the book. The premise basically, it, and also sort of a visual aesthetic that you haven't seen in anything else. So Final Fantasy very famously was originally like very high fantasy, Swords, dragons, mm -hmm. magic, wizards with huge hats. In fact, there's the original Final Fantasy game. It's like you can see exactly who they're supposed to be in terms of like the archetypes, of the pixels. Final Fantasy three slash six. I'm just gonna call it six because that's <laughs> what the whatever guys um, was steampunk with magic, with also swords, with also machines. And the premise of the game was that there was this empire 
who found a way to harness magic. They basically were killing these magical creatures called espers, manufacturing their essence into this, like, essentially a solid, a, a like, a, um, a, like, uh, fossil fuel, and then using that to power these giant mechanized suits Ooh. called Magitech. So there's this huge, like, like, weird environmental, but also sort of genocidal undercurrent storyline and the whole premise is you like you're a bunch you basically collect all these characters together and what the first character you get is this character named uh tara who's like half human half esper he doesn't know it yet spoiler alert guys it's a 30 year old game um but um but the premise is basically you get all these people together and you have to stop the emperor from moving these three statues that will that could cause this magical energy reaction that will destroy the world and you're being chased by like his like kind of uh, his like court jester basically a character named Kefka, um, and he's kind of bumbling and silly. He literally is just like a clown. And um, as you go more and more, Kefka gets crazier and crazier, but he's still like this clown, right? And so you go there to stop the end of the world. You convince the emperor not to do this thing, and then Kefka kills the emperor, and the world ends. And that's the halfway <laughs> point of the game. <laughs> is that everything you've been doing for 20 some hours and who knows how long the game took because all games got kind of like stretched out even further since then uh, is trying to prevent this game happening that happens. All of your characters get scattered across the world. The actual physical characteristics of the world changes because it gets scorched by Kefka. And um, you have to basically like start over and go stop Kefka. He's already destroyed the world and now it's about like what oh, do we do now that the world can end it. It's nuts. There are a couple other things, like, the character of Kefka also is a very interesting, complicated, sociopathic creature. Um, there's also this famous scene, and I, I, I'll go, I'll, I promise this is the last thing I'll say about <laughs> the first half of my answer to your question. Um, there's this famous scene, which is the opera scene. Uh, you are, one of your characters has to infiltrate this opera house um, and gets mistaken for the star of the opera. And so Celis is her name, and she has to perform this opera, which means you have to perform the opera. You have to know what, what the next uh, line is in each song uh, as you do it. And if you look up the Final Fantasy opera scene, um, another example of like the limits of technology being pushed to their ab absolute edge, it sounds like a symphony, but it's, eight, it's like 16-bit so cool. MIDI file, bloop, 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 but it's incredible. I was going to say, what uh, console is this? But you said 16-bit, so Super I'm Nintendo. going Super yeah. Nintendo. Uh, yeah. it's, it's an incredible game. The music's incredible. It's, 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 it was very, very hard, and the story was, was breathtaking. Um, the other game, and this I think is a good segue into the larger conversation, is, is that um, I'm, I'm a Zelda guy through and through. Um, and, you know, yeah, like you, you, you do the list of all the best games ever made, and, and I will make the case, and it probably won't be popular, but to me, the, the absolute best video game ever made of all time is, the, is, is Zelda Breath of the Wild that came out like three years ago. It is a perfect game. And Kerb, it's interesting like, that you're on board with this one as well because I know you and you're a tinkerer. You like kind of figuring stuff out. Um, and one of the things about Miyamoto is, and, and the creation of Zelda was that Zelda was meant to be an open game. And Zelda was meant to be something where you have no idea what's going on. There is no... Uh, Nintendo power really to look up what to do. To Miyamoto, the act of just figuring things out to figure out what I'm supposed to do next, like that was the fun. Mm -hmm. He liked the idea of of like 
not having an answer, not having a playbook, not even having a moves list, or even like a sensibility of what your goal is supposed to be beyond, yeah. okay, there's a Triforce out there. I'm going to find it somehow. I have no idea where it is. Um, and all that came from, from his sort of backstory as a, as a kid in, uh, in rural Kyoto. Um, you know, his ways of thinking about these games differently, it not only pushed forward, while storytelling games were pushed forward technology. And I have a comment <laughs> on that too, but I can save it because I've been not. talking for a minute. Um, but, you know, get in. Well, I think what's interesting there is it also ends up being sort of the break point in a thing I'm, I'm sure I brought up last time we talked about this, just because it's a thing I say frequently, but like my own, my own journey sort of in and out of video games, like the, I, although I say Zelda, like, like as a thing I feel that close and sort of attached to, I didn't really make it past, uh, Linked, linked to the past. Third was one, that yeah. the Super Nintendo? Yeah. The third one, which I, I loved. But like, there's this, you know, and part of my problem with uh, modern games frequently is like, if I sit down to play a game, the time I have is limited. <laughs> and if the first thing you say is like, yo, you got to do this mm -hmm. tutorial because I, there's all this complex shit I need you to know. I'm like, man, if I wanted to learn a thing right now, I would be going <laughs> to like play guitar because that's a more satisfying thing to learn. If I'm going to use the part of my brain, it needs to memorize finger sequences in order to, you know, achieve Sounds an good. outcome. But like, but I think, I think like the thing you're talking about in terms of the culture of video games, the design of video games falls right at that line, which is like, I prefer a game you can just stumble through and then learn how to do. And, and that, you know, like the success of Nintendo it, in part it's like a it comes back to this perfect storm of of like uh technological limitation clever solutions and then this sort of like design philosophy that all landed in this perfect storm of nintendo's yeah. success because partially like a tutorial was just hard to walk you through like it's funny you mentioned final fantasy because that's an example of a game like even really early on you kind of had to like figure out how the turn sequence worked and what you know like there was a lot of stuff to figure out and so i never really got on the final fantasy train whereas zelda was just like you figure it out because you bump into a thing and die and go okay i guess i shouldn't bump into that but then you get to try again and then you're like <laughs> okay now i know not to bump into that thing and now i'm in a shop what do i do oh but they introduced yeah. that right away because you just you go in a hole and then you're in a shop and you only have one choice pick the sword but they just taught you how the selection to go works without saying Hey, you're gonna learn. What yeah, and, 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 and part of the reason why so. that works is the game was designed to be that way. Like it, it, you know, for every first-person shooter that has a long tutorial sequence, and a lot of them do. Um, like Metal Gear Solid is 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 one of the series that very famously like takes a long time to figure out. But it it all comes down to the philosophy of who made the game, um, and it, you know. It's not a bad segue into this really cool thing because you brought up like the past and also technological limitations. So, in uh, in 1990, Miyamoto was trying to figure out how to basically expand upon what's already been done in Zelda, and and he he was really into the notion of just the experience mm -hmm. of looking around is the fun. Meaning, for people that don't have 50 hours to sit down and just play by like forever, you can play for 10 minutes. Totally. It's like it's like walking in a garden for 10 minutes. The way that he designed his game, it's like you're not gonna finish anything. <laughs> You, you'll just make progress. 
and in his mind, making progress is the fun. And so if you only have five minutes to play the game, you can walk like, that's a Breath of the Wild so cool because there's all these little things that count as progress that if you just have a minute to play like, on the bus or something, you can like, get something done without having to take a giant chunk off or reach a save point or do whatever. Um, but very famously, he was making uh, Link to the Past, which is called Triforce of the Gods in Japan. And uh, he wanted to make the game bigger. And he had this idea of like, well, what if we, you know, he wanted there to be like a, like a false victory where there's this print, there's this dark wizard who's actually been possessed by Ganon, who's the villain in the first one. He wanted to kind of bring it back, but everyone kept on telling him, so these cartridges are big, they're not that big. We can only do so much. And what he figured out was to do what basically a map overlay of the existing map and created this thing called the dark world in which you could look in a magic mirror or find a little point that would transport you and you could switch from the light world to the dark world. It's basically the same map and it's built on the exact same technology except shit's in different places and the color is different. By doing that, he was able to basically double the scope and length cool. of the game without doubling the size of the, of the computer file. You know what I mean? My recollection is it just literally inverted the colors. It's like if you turn on accessibility features in your, like uh, some of the sprites were in different yeah. places and stuff, but like everything that was previously white basically, turned black. I mean, it, it was more of like then... a kind of like puce and like and like just sort of gross colored, um, and uh, right. the music was different. And actually, it's a real uh, you know it kind of speaks to the the impact of these games on you. Um, if you go listen to like sure. the music, you know all the beats of the music still. So it's still in there. And it's it, and it fits underneath this thing. Yeah, we talked about that in the first uh, our first oh, yeah. episode. We went to one of those Jones and I went to one of those uh, like the symphony plays oh, yeah. video game songs uh, things. Oh yeah, it's amazing. Many years ago. Um, but 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 that's that's part of that's part of what I'm talking about with them. And by the way, it's not that way for everybody. And if you look at games now, it's there's sort of a um, there are a few different schisms in which which way these games go. Because on one hand, you have the ones that are so big and so complicated. I'm talking, about, I'm talking about not including the ones that you're talking about with like required tutorials and a lot of understanding. These are just like the games that are so big where exploration is part of the experience and games that are so small and self-contained that they're done in 10 minutes or less. Like that's what Fortnite is right now. <laughs> Fortnite is a volume game. That is, I'm going to play 50 games of Fortnite in, uh, in this hour instead of just, you know, look around for one thing. Um, I'm kind of meandering a little bit, but basically the, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that a lot of the early feelings that we had playing these games and a lot of the things that shaped, um, that shaped our, our selections of the games that we liked, it really said a lot about who we are. And it says a lot about what, what kind of people we are. I, I mean, I know, I know plenty <laughs> of people that would be eminently frustrated by, by a game where you did not know where the sword was. But I also know a lot of people, present company included, at least uh, for sure, uh, actually both of you guys are like this, where like totally. getting it wrong is part of the fun and trying a bunch of different versions of it is part of the fun. So like uh, that really was the, the, what Miyamoto wanted to put in these games. There's actually a, a philosophy called Kyokan. It comes from uh, primatology and it's basically like replicating the emotional experience of someone else. And they did it to describe like how you're supposed to talk to apes. Like, basically try to like try to feel what they're feeling um and Miyamoto's whole thing was I want people to, the people that play these games to feel like I did when I was a kid 
playing around the woods in Kyoto, you know, looking in this famous cave. There's a famous cave um, that everyone's been trying to look for for years where Miyamoto, like, figured out Zelda when he was, like, nine. Um, he wants it to be, like, that feeling. And if you like to play that way, if you like that sort of, that sort of imaginative immersion and just directionless exploration with like something bigger at the end that you don't, that you feel as yeah. it's like satisfaction when you find it, then those games are for you. And it was by design the whole way because of a, a very specific philosophy this game maker had. Well, that makes a lot of sense with those, the types of games we're mostly talking about here. Cause they're, they're adventure games where you're assuming the character, you're becoming the character in the game who then you want to be that, that thing, right? I want to be, uh, the character. I want to be Mario. I want to be uh, Link running around in in the world of Zelda, right? Like I want to be the adventure. I want to physically grab the sword and fill my pockets with gold. Um, I'm curious how you feel games like Tetris fit into the world of like psychological reactions and how you play with those. Because Tetris, I mean, world phenomenon, right? Um, and feels like the same kind of game, even though Tetris Tetris was like way ahead of its time, right? Tetris was was the first phone game, kind of, right? Something that's easy. It's the same thing over and over again, kind of. I was going to say, you can't divorce it from the popularity of Game Boy, which is in itself... Totally, like, that's like true. A Nintendo, another Nintendo oh, phenomenon. Because if you think about Game Boy's competitors, it was like, we're in color! And Nintendo was like, doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> do, you guys know, do you guys know the story of Tetris? It's insane all right so so the story of tetris and a lot of people know about this um tetris was designed by a soviet nuclear engineer <laughs> named uh alexei pajitnov and um he didn't spare time it was just like a fun thing he programmed in the corner and it was based on this soviet or russian game called petominoes in which you had like a square and you had a bunch of pieces and the goal was to put all the pieces in there and so alexei was like i'm gonna make this this computer version just for ourselves. Ha ha, isn't this fun? Uh, and it was discovered by an independent video game producer named Hank Rogers, who uh, was living in Japan, but trying to make, he was kind of like your original, like, um, sort of like, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of him, like almost like Sean Parker in the social network. Like he found things and basically made the deal. Uh, he found this game Tetris and he's like, oh my God, we have to get this game. So he called Nintendo and he goes, we gotta get this game. And he goes, well, who owns it? And he goes, <laughs> oh, the government of the Soviet Union. <laughs> so they're like, well, we can't help you. So Hank goes to Russia and befriends Alexei Padinov, who, of course, is super suspicious of him. He goes into the Ministry of, of like, Information and basically tries to buy this game, like, lights the game from the Russians. Right. This is 1985. <laughs> and they're like, we have no idea what you're talking about. Like, this is, they're not things we do. And he basically explains to them, so I want to, I want to take this game and make it over here. And so he becomes, like, best buddies with Alexei. Uh, he finally gets the backing of Nintendo. And by the way, meanwhile, there's like all these different companies all trying to basically weasel their way into the Soviet Union to get this game. And this guy ends up kind of going to the source and and uh, and they end up bringing the game to Nintendo as this is the thing that will sell your Game Boys. Huh. Because your Game Boys are only this bit, screens, you know, two inches by two inches. You can't do color. You need something simple. This game is currently be playing basically on like, on like Commodores, you know, uh, or the Russian version of Commodore, so a little bit jankier, probably. Um, and so it becomes this worldwide phenomenon uh, and is the reason why not only the Game Boy worked, the reason why handheld gaming worked. Like, other gaming, other handheld games came out, 
a lot of them, like you said, are nicer um, and they were in color. But the Game Boy created that experience of totally almost like a crossword puzzle. It's a thing you pick up and put down. And it's a, it's a little puzzle, the Rubik's Cube, you know? Other Russian thing. So I would say talking about where <laughs> Tetris fits, aside from that just banana story of the fact that like they had to buy it from a country <laughs> that didn't do buying things, um, is, is the fact that what people look for in play like that that's not a right. immersive experience the same way that like a zelda or metal gear is or even like even the call of duty games or like fortnite those are the sort of modern games are um it is simply a tiny challenge a little like puzzle it's to me it's no different than like than getting a jigsaw puzzle as you're a kid or um, I don't always those like logic puzzles where it's like made out of wood. And it's like how do I get this one uh-huh. wooden ball totally. out of this like wooden cube? You know what I'm talking about? Like those things, um, like very basic stuff. But it speaks to our inherent nature of enjoying solving problems. Um, I also have a feeling that like I'm sure he's been on the podcast before. People like Craig, <laughs> <laughs> like the like the super geniuses we know. Like that kind of game, I think spoke to people like that even more. Uh, people that were that thought in right. math, you know, and thought in spatial math. Like, like my mind can't can't hold those things. But like, I think that's one of the things that Tetris did. Um, it was also uh, one oh, of the first right. two-player between Game Boys, games. right? Yeah, you could link up Game Boy. Um, like, have Mar- you have you tried Tetris yeah. Effect? Yeah, like Mar- the latest. Yeah. What is that? Wave of Tetris. Yes. Oh, it's all. It's, oh, it's, it's yeah. super cool. Are you the it's Tetris. And by the way, that game was designed, the new one was designed also by Alexi Pazimov yeah. and Hank Rogers. They're still making them today. They own Tetris. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's like the dynamic uh, we described for Fortnite just now, but with Tetris. And you play with 99 oh, other cool. people, all of which you can, and you can see all their screens at once. And it's a winner-take-all game. And so when you clear lines, you oh, pick awesome. who you're going to send them to. And at the beginning, yeah. it's just kind of random, but eventually people, and it turns out that Tetris is, it's either simple enough or people are so broadly familiar with it that you can literally peripherally take in 99 <laughs> ongoing games of Tetris and vaguely know what's yeah. going on That's without really acti- actively focusing on what's going on until it eventually gets yeah. down to a number where you're trying to defeat the other people. Um, so they took Tetris and made it into a version where now it is it, it crosses the line. It takes your familiarity with this little problem-solving tinker game and ramps it into the space of combat games and like <laughs> and the, the sort of... Um, so then how... So w- which, which kind of bridges to another type of game, I think, to hit quickly, which is like, wh- where do the... Where do the one-on-one fighter games fit into that right because that's kind of in that space of like yeah we could be playing basketball instead we're gonna play you know street <laughs> fighter against one another and pass the controller around yeah well you know i, I think it's most basic level is that um all of us could probably play we could all get together and play a game of basketball that would make sense it, it wouldn't be nba quality <laughs> we all couldn't get together and um beat the holy shit out of each other in a way that was like you could, you, could, you could do more than once. We did used to fight to the death in your living room all the time, though, Rosolio. Well, yeah, it was a game called Death Ball 3000. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. 
I remember the game we had to stop playing because my brother and I like tackled each other and we both really hurt each other. And we're like, we, we can't, we can't, we can't play it anymore. We can't do this ever again. Anyway. Um, so, so I, I can only speak to like, I don't know about the psychological impulse that people have to do this. And I think there is a little bit of something that happened in the early nineties in terms of like video games, all of a sudden getting a lot more violent and crazy, like, like bro if you want to even mm-hmm. kind of categorize it that way. But in terms of why those games got popular, because I was really into Street Fighter also, like, and, and, and then Mortal Kombat for Primal Street Fighter. I think the difference also is that it was a, it, there's a difference between sitting in your basement and playing a game. And there's also a difference between sitting in your basement and playing a game against a friend who, who came over and going and doing it in public. Um, I think that Street Fighter especially was this game, it was a game you watched other people play. Mm-hmm. And because it was exciting to the degree of watching two people play basketball against each other. Like it, that, that's the weird totally. difference. And, 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 you know, you yeah, can say what you want about like whether it's viable, but now it's, of course it's, it's huge. Um, the thing about street, so I used to play street fighter for money and I, I have distinct memories <laughs> of playing it, Bethany. Nice. Uh, I, and this, it, it, this happened every single time. Uh, but I have a, I have a memory of the first time it happened this way. It was Bethany it was where Jones's uh, uh, family beach house is. It pro- it's probably come up. Um, but, uh, what you would do is you would take your 50 cents and you would, you would wait in line. And when you were next up, you would take your 50 cents and put it in front of the person you thought was going to lose. And if they lost, that was your buy-in. You took 50 cents, you put it in the game and you were up next. If they won, that 50 cents went in their pocket and you got in the back of the end of the line. That's awesome. Yeah. I've never heard of that. And yeah. And, and, and we used to do that for a while and every game ended the same way. There was one kid from Japan <laughs> who knew who he he knew something about the game you didn't know, and he knew extra moves about it that you didn't know, and he played the original version before it got ported over to the U.S. version. And again, we're ten, by the way, we're ten years old, and yet this kid gets in line, and you're like, oh, he knows something we don't know, and and sure enough, like just the, he would just beast everybody, and that was it. Um, I I think also in terms of, of like why those games got popular curb, it's part of it is like the fact that there are moves to know. And until like they got super, super disseminated and you knew like you just look up what the moves were somewhere or worse yet, the combos, which I didn't even get started on like that to me ruined fighting games. Um, it was this, like, it was kind of like a, a sport and it was something you would do in front of other people. And it was mm-hmm. a communal thing. You would win a game and people would like cheer. It's fun. You know? And uh, I, I think that's what, oh, that's another thing. It also made video games more social because if you're playing at your house or you're playing with like family or friends, like you're kind of limited to whoever's over. And we've, I've had a bunch of people over together and we all played Super Nintendo, like that happens. But like, there's something different about being out in the world and talking to strangers that all like the same thing. Totally. I mean, I brought something about sports once, like, it is a fun communal thing. It's the equivalent of being in a foreign country and seeing someone with like a hat from a, yeah. uh, the city you grew up in. It's a little bit of a shorthand. And all of a sudden it's just a fun communal thing beyond just a solitary thing. Now, granted, I, I, I think there's also a difference between like kinds of games. Like, like Zelda is a very solitary game. Um, Street Fighter by yourself isn't as fun. And it's because you want to play other people and their interpretations of how to use those characters. Um, and without getting too into it, basically, like, after a certain point, they started pre-coding these combos in. They were, like, 80-hit combos. 
and that's when to me the fighting games kind of jumped the shark because back in the day in my <laughs> in my era you you had three moves basically you could figure out how to string them together but there wasn't right. like a way to string them together in which you couldn't stop it and like i bought these pixel maps this is how nerdy i was guys I bought these pixel maps that would show you a character's, the drawing of the character's sprite, right? And it would show you, especially in, this is a, a very specifically Street Fighter thing, the area that you could block oh, with a high block and the area cool. you could block with a low block. And there's a line in the middle of like basically one pixel width wide. And if you hit that, you ain't blocking that. And so you would study it up. It's like watching game film. Like you would study where to hit Blanca, where you had to hit Ryu, <laughs> where you had to hit wherever. And you would learn, you would learn how to deal there. That's another thing. Because each character was different and they had their own set of moves and their own set of whatevers, you had to rethink your strategy. Or you could mash the buttons and you could win a lot of games doing that. But there, it, there was a very like mentally stimulating uh, uh, part of those games where there is a real-time think-fast strategy going on. And that, to me, is something I also thought was really, really cool. Well, in that way, it's like a sport, you know, that you can play with your friends in your basement and all that kind of stuff. But there's this, there's, there's, there's a way to be quantifiably right. better at it than other people. Right. And you can attain that by practicing. And so, like, you know, but like you're saying, I think you get past a point <laughs> where it's too complex and ridiculous. Sort of. And you can... <laughs> Is that, that, are you, yeah. are you sending it? It's what came up when I searched Pebble, Pixel Map, Street Fighter. <laughs> it's just over the clothes stuff. Um, it appears, it appears yeah, to I mean, be there's okay. a it's funny, safe for work. Uh, no, you're right. There's a <sighs> funny, there's a funny thing that we, we should talk about and maybe it doesn't make it in there. That's just like the, uh, I know talking about. maybe they're a little Dead bit for Mortal Kombat. Soul Calibur is the first time that I remember looking at characters <laughs> and being like, uh, that chick's hot. Like, <laughs> so you should look at okay. So, <clears throat> so dead. So there's a game called Dead or Alive that's like the most famous for this, where it's basically you're. It's basically girls in bikinis fighting. Um, this was a cultural shift that happened uh, around the, the the sort of like basically just post basically between Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat, right? Because back in the day, video games were not for adults and they weren't even for, for like, they weren't even for like teenagers, they were kids. Uh, and, or like they're all ages, they're kind of like Disney in that way. Then at a certain point, I think it's when the business started to expand and people wanted to they, like, you know, open new markets and how do you sell to, to, mm. to new people? The whole industry kind of took a turn for the bro -y. And all of a sudden video games became kind of a dude thing. That's where we end up with this, the like, <laughs> the heart's getting ripped out and the, the, the half naked, you know, Chun-Li started wearing less and less in like in increasing games. Um, and it, it sort of changed a little bit of the dynamic of how, of, of quote unquote, who, who video games belong to. And you can draw a map from there directly to all the Gamergate garbage. And I don't want to blow up your mentions here or anything, but like all the, all the guys who decided that you couldn't have women that are video game producers, cause that was a thing. <laughs> Um, all that kind of started the same place where in order to sell, in order to sell these games to, uh, to testosterone driven kids that are watching MTV, you got to replicate MTV and put it in the game. And that's where we end up with <laughs> this sort of like 
and, all, and, and anime was very similar like that too in Japan. Like, like there are very adult <laughs> anime, uh, and there are, you know, it gets pretty graphic and pretty, um, pretty bang aroundy in that. But as video games kind of became more and more, not only for dudes but for like adult dudes, uh, you saw that like visual shift in in them drawing the characters like that. You're thinking, I think, probably of Ivy and Soul Calibur. Yeah, I was gonna say Ivy Valentine got impre- like like progressively sluttier until it was just straight up bondage, like 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 cre- creepiness. And I even remember at a young age being like, "This is arousing, but weird." And I was never sure if it was because it's a video game character or because it's. But in Japan, but in Japan, like 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 anime is the same. Is there's no, and I wouldn't really have that anymore either. Uh, but like. You could have car- like cartoons are for adults and cartoons are for kids. Like that's kind of how it works. And and we kind of in a much more conservative country with that stuff, especially back then. Um, like we were very appalled by all those things. And so part of pushing the envelope and 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 expanding the 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 <laughs> market of what video games are is to go that direction and make it more like, you know, it's basically MTV's the grind, but everyone's fighting. Um, you know, like like they saw that and said, "How do we turn that into this?" And that's where you end up with that. I think also, um, it was a very specific era that was happening, and I'm not even talking about women, like the the role of women in sure. games, the role of women's characters in games. But like, there's a big difference between how they drew the first Lara Croft and how they drew the most recent Lara right. Croft game. She's dressed appropriately. In the like the most games. recent Lara Croft, she looks like like, <laughs> like Alicia Vikander. She looks like like she's wearing like normal <laughs> adventure clothes in the new ones. In the first one, she's just appropriately. She's just good. For, she's right. just like how how like you would dress for the outdoors. <laughs> um, in the first one, it's like it's basically if if a Barbie doll and 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 like the the most naked Angelina Jolie are the same are like the same person. But that's who they're selling the games to. You know, like the, like the, the sort of the global gaming community made a decision that we are specifically marketing to teenage boys. And when they did that, all these other parts of it came in. And some of it's still there. Like some of it, there are games that are like set up that way. Like Bayonetta is another example of a game that is very much inspired by that era. Um, But I think it also speaks to like who culture decided these games were for back then. Like I have friends that, um, like uh, my friend Haley Mancini, you guys actually have on the show sometime. She's really cool. Uh, She like loves the early Nintendo games and she was very aware of when all of a sudden people started telling her, Hey, these aren't for you anymore. Or like you playing these games makes you a tomboy or makes you, you know, something else. Like she has very vivid recollections of when that thing got taken away from her. And that happened, that happened alongside the MTVification of these games. Um, Now that said, the nineties were kind of jacked up. <laughs> what a annoying period. Yeah. It's so frustrating that girls our age weren't brought up with uh yeah, bro culture bro culture destroyed like fifteen it, it, years of yeah, good of Sorry. time that we were growing up. It was really disgusting culture. But I think like to 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 sort of get back to the 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 thing we diverted from with Tetris and fighting games and everything, I don't I I can't like Nintendo did not go that yes. they didn't 
it seems like they willfully didn't yeah, follow that totally. path. And Nintendo is still around while Soul Calibur games like, yeah, I feel like mad to bring about, it back. You know, that's why you are the host of this show. Uh, <laughs> check this out. So, so it's so funny you say that because, you know, I'm very fascinated for reasons that you can Google. Um, the era, the, the era of like when Nintendo kind of went from owning 90% of the market share to kind of everyone else coming in. Like the rise of Sony, the rise of Sega, the rise of Xbox, all these things came in. I, I am fascinated by this world. Stay tuned. Um, but one thing I'll say without kind of giving away too much of the ending, but you can fucking Google it, is that it was by design. And Nintendo, one of the most brilliant things Nintendo did, and it was driven by Miyamoto, and, and, and some of the other people at Nintendo did not like this idea at all. Because Nintendo was everything. Nintendo was video games, right? Um, Nintendo made a decision at a certain point that they no longer had to be number one, necessarily. They made a decision that they could be forever instead. Like, think about Disney, right? Like, Disney started off as a thing for kids. I dress up like a Star Wars character and run half, run, run half marathons at Disneyland, okay? Something <laughs> happened there. Um, Nintendo has, has kind of changed the way, they diverted from the way everyone else went and that they didn't necessarily, they, 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 they dallied in it a little bit, but Nintendo decided instead that they were going to be eternal. They were going to be like Disney. They were going to be this nostalgic thing and they weren't going to necessarily try to be new and different, but they don't really have to be new and different. Like, I will still play the first Zelda game. I will still play Link to the Past. And the new games that are coming out, they all kind of have that same sort of fun feel to it, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, they didn't go down the same path. They, they decided at a certain point to kind of make games that, they, that make the games that brought them there, you know? And they kind of left everything else to the, the Sonys and the Microsofts and, and um, uh, the other companies that have kind of dominated the market now. I mean, I, I, think, I think I'm not even well, sure. Well, I think what's that, interesting, so. it's like uh, the where video games slot into culture and just into like the time you have in a day is like there's this, there's an aspect of, because of the technology piece, there's this, you know, the wave ramps up of here's this new thing and here's how it can exist. And you got this front runner Nintendo. And at some point they decide to go with like, or, or rather these, these two things coexist, right? There's, there's a human interest in novelty. And so there's always going to be that extent to which you're like, Hey, this is a new thing. And then that's going to necessarily intermingle with sexuality. And so you'd necessarily get this emergent sort of run of video games that are like sexy women fighting. It's like, (laughs) but eventually that sort of wears off to an extent. And there's always that little part of your brain that's still like, yeah, but Tetris is a great game. And so I just want to like, so the extent to which you, you like solving problems and you like a coherent narrative with characters that you recognize, like it's always there. And so at some point Nintendo was like, okay, we're just going to go with the, recognizable characters, fun games, accessible to all, and we're never going to go anywhere. While these other people chase novelty in this way where like eventually the sexiness is too much and they go, oh, we need to, now it's novel that Lara Croft doesn't look like unnaturally proportioned. And so people are interested in that and yeah. and the games are exciting. And it's, it's like, 
and you can follow the same stuff in movies like because you the problem with chasing novelty versus saying here's what we can do and it's good and it's fun is like you go back and watch the original terminator hmm. like it's still a good movie for what it was at the time but it's like the novelty's all gone and it's kind of just like okay well that's you know hey a, a picture of the 80s um <laughs> we tried to watch you know, the original like, terminator the other night and had to turn it off it's actually it's actually pretty T2, bad <laughs> on the other hand though is a masterpiece T2 is an and holds it up much better for sure yeah dark fate coming out but like yeah excited great but casting. so but so you know so nintendo like you're saying it's it's this interesting perfect storm of all that stuff and it, it takes a certain all like genius to say yeah but the boobs don't matter because tetris is still tetris like the simplicity of a mario game and the sort of puzzles and the problem solving the exploration is always going to defeat the novelty if you're running the marathon yeah because the novelty goes in and out and things get broy and then they're less broy and then oh we'll have dinosaurs fighting instead and it's like yeah but after a while so, it's just dinosaurs and a great like, another great parallel because it, it's really smart to talk about it in terms of movies i think it parallels comedy like stand-up comedy because there are waves and eras of stand-up that and you watch the shifting tide and someone does something and everyone else does something and someone does something and everyone else does something and you're exactly right because sony for example or, or not sony but um uh i forgot who made god of war there's a game called god of war which is one of the great series as a brilliant game series it's awesome in fact the new god of war is a very like emotionally interesting father-son story hmm. uh it's really like a like a deep experience and what 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 everyone curve up really appreciates a film scholar as well is that uh there are no there are no cuts it's one continuous shot and there's no cut scenes they seamlessly put everything in so it looks like one giant one giant take the entire game does cool but um so god of war which is the i think the fifth god of war in the series is like this deep exploration of a widowed father and or and, and, and this his son and like it's coming of age story and you're pushing through these giant monsters, but you're also like desperately trying to keep your son alive. And it's like, oh man. And it's like the the breadth and, and depth of emotions you feel. In God of War 2, you bang Aphrodite. <laughs> With... <laughs> Quite a shit. So yeah. So like even within that series, the game had to kind of change to be like, well, what are, what are the like what do people want? Back then they wanted and this is like the mid-aughts or something like that. Like they wanted this sort of visceral crazy, oh my God, we're banging Aphrodite. Um, and then it, then later on, you wanted the more sort of like complex narrative. But if, but if you're doing something, if you're playing your game instead of trying to play someone else's game, then you don't have to like convince, you don't have to figure out what people, other people want. You could say, hey, this is here if you guys want it. And more often than not with these, with these classic games, I mean, holy shit, like, the fact that that I'm this jazzed about Metroid Prime Four is stupid because there's a million of these other little first and it's first person shooter and there's a million of them. Metal Gear Solid, let's be more of a first person shooter, but like Call of Duty and Fortnite, they're all the same kind of thing. Metroid is going to be a different thing. By the way, talking about the emotional viability of Metroid, I'm, you wouldn't say something. Do you remember when you found out that Samus <laughs> is a woman? <laughs> right. I mean, that that's another example of like, that was a holy shit kind yeah, of deal. Was, and a pre I was going to say, that's like the zero suit Samus is like the closest Nintendo gets to being sexy. But even, th yeah. And even then that was, <laughs> I, that was like a, that was like a crazy, 
you know, for people like my friend Haley, it, that was like a holy shit moment. Like totally. it, 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 right. it sort right. of like zeroed in everything like that. It was in a sex positive way. It's sex positive is not the way to say it, but because it's not about sex, but it's, you know, it, it, I think it's just, it, it wasn't in a way that it was about, oh, it turned out that this chick is sexy. Right. Like, Samus has both. Let's play some volleyball now right. or whatever. Oh, it's, it's funny to say volleyball because Dead or Alive, <laughs> the characters in Dead or Alive, there is a Dead or Alive volleyball game. <laughs> yeah. Where you, that's where you play with the fighting game characters volleyball. And it's just like, play there you have Beach it. volleyball, where they are now appropriately dressed for the game at hand, <laughs> which is the funny part. They made a change There's the game a, to do that way. Well, there's a funny parallel. So my wife has been super into playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey lately, which is pretty standard for the Assassin's Creed games, except at the very beginning, you choose if you want to play as a man or a woman. Oh, huh. And there's a funny phenomenon that I've noticed with this, which is I generally, like those games are too complex for me to sit around and watch, but the female character is hot. And she's playing as the female character, which she likes because she's a woman. <laughs> And, and, and I don't mind watching cause it's like, you know, it's decent background eye candy, like for, for whatever I'm browsing on my iPad at the time. And I really like compared to the, what you were talking about with the bro down, it makes me think of a thing that they talk about in film classes of, in the eighties. There like Top Gun is a revolutionary movie in ways that people don't realize because before Top Gun, the archetypal script for that kind of movie was uh, attractive women and macho dudes. Yeah. And like, and the idea was, well, girls aren't going to watch it. So like, like basically they, they were, they were movies for bros and the producers of Top Gun came in and went, let's like hypersexualize the men and then downplay the women, and I bet everyone shows up to watch it anyway. I mean, that, and it works. That volleyball scene like everybody is basically like exactly. porkies. <laughs> yes. Such a good scene. And it worked. And then that was like the standard for its for a decade of movies yeah. where they were like, oh, no, we need hot guys so the women show up. And then the men show up because they want to be the hot guys. And the women show up because they want right. to see Which Tom is exactly Cruise what happens in reverse most of the time. We've just been missing Val out Kilmer. on the market opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it's funny when you see these dynamic shifts, because now with the video games, it's like, oh, if we create a, an attractive female character, then women playing the games want to play the games and we can stop with this Gamergate shit. And dudes are like, well, I'll watch that character run around. She's hot. So, so, <laughs> so it's like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if there's a, a beat in there, but well, you know, it's interesting watching the evolution of that stuff. Right. Like, I don't I don't uh, the shift toward Lara Croft looking more normal does not cause me to to drift away from wanting to look at Lara Croft oh, as a character yeah, and go, oh, she's attractive. Um, <laughs> another, so something you said reminded me of something else that I think is interesting to the conversation about the game experience. There's a game called Dishonored 2. So Dishonored 1 is very fun. Dishonored 2 is awesome. And maybe people don't like it. <laughs> I like it. I don't care. Um, Dishonored 2 is a game where you can play as either there's like this freeze frame at the very beginning and either the father, you're either going to play as the father or the daughter throughout this whole campaign and one of them gets frozen in ice and the other one has to, you have to free the other one. So it's actually a really fun game. But what's interesting is it's a, it's a sneak around game. You're heavily armed. <laughs> um, and it's a game that presents you with a moral choice of how to play it. And it kind of gives you a hint 
of what's happening throughout it, but I, I, I knew in advance this was a thing. So <laughs> is killing people good or bad as a concept? Uh, well, <laughs> in video games, it's totally fine. Uh, this game, however, basically presents you every encounter with another person in the game is a decision. You can play Dishonored, stabbing and shooting your way through this giant army. And by the way, everyone is bad around you. These aren't like good guys. These are like soldiers outside of the fortresses and there's like evil scientists and everyone is sort of binarily bad. However, the more people you kill over the course of the game causes this plague to get worse and worse in the world of the game where all of a sudden these rats will attack you and these other things will happen. Um, but more importantly, the more people you kill in the game, the worse your ending gets. There's a sliding scale of endings from the good ending to the bad ending. And there's like four in between. And how many people you kill determines which ending you get. And part of it is like, it's basically like what happens to somebody who, who, who just murders 100 people in a, in a, in a, in a, in a sort of like steampunky, um, uh, you know, swords and, and flintlock kind of way. Um, but it's a game that I think, I don't want to say it says a lot about who the person playing it, because if you do <laughs> are the person wants to stab everybody, you're probably, who knows what, but like, it's an interesting, it's interesting to play something, especially coming up from the Contras of the world or Metroid, but mainly Contra, where it's just shoot the shit out of everything, um, to basically be in a position of, I have to get to that place over there. This guy has a sword and it's drawn on me and he wants to kill me. Do I kill him? Do I even, do I even fight him at all? Do I run? Do I run and hide and try to get around even though I'm, I, my chances of winning are harder because of that? Like that's the kind of stuff that modern games are doing that I think are bringing us to whatever that next evolution of this thing is. I mean, Last of Us is a couple of years old and Dishonored is probably two or three years old, but like games are getting more and more emotionally and like, Mm -hmm. uh philosophically challenging and i think that's a really cool evolution of, of of what's going on a lot of it was kind of done by um hideo kojima who made metal gear solid and his games were always really emotionally like and very you know emotionally challenging and hmm. very like is war good or bad <laughs> i mean they're like those games are nuts and they 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 really speak to like the inherent horror of death and violence what that you're also participating in. And um, so I, I'm curious to see, it's not just the sort of like cutesy talking clouds of Nintendo that will play forever. That will always be fine. Like I think people are just like in the 1970s when filmmaking became more inward and interesting and deeper. And the mob movie went from being, uh, you know, James Cagney to, to Al Pacino. Um, <laughs> I think it's happening here. from Scarface to Scarface. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would make the case that that the that the Brian De Palma Scarface <laughs> is basically dead or alive volleyball. Uh, but pretty fair. But you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, like that's something that's happening too. So just as as we kind of like mourn the loss of of the old the olden days, um, these new things are coming down the pike too that are really interesting. There's a game called Death Stranding that's been, that is another one of these like weird like it's almost like a cormac mccarthy novel uh well so. i think they just it treads on you know like what you're talking about is as the complexity of the technology gets more vast and we're able to make these games that are more cinematic and and functionally uh emotional 
like you end up there's it's this roller coaster of novelty but then it stabilizes around these two things we like to solve problems we like to be involved with these characters that we feel close to and then we're emotional beings and so like even the even the sex part is starting to show up in interesting ways that assassin's creed game i was just talking about whether you play as uh the man or the woman there are opportunities in these interactions where it's like there's this third option now and that third option is hmm. the option that is blatantly try to seduce this character <laughs> and you can do it and sometimes y'all bang it's not particularly pornographic but like it's in there and so they're not like trying to pretend that that's sure. that's a better sex positive move in terms of using that term properly um and yeah, I mean, that trend's been going for a while in terms of not the sex stuff, but just the idea of emotional complexity. Like, I haven't really played them, but my understanding is Bioshock and like Mass, oh, Bioshock. Like Mass Effect. Yeah. They all have things where you can pick to be skeevy or sleazy or not. And then that impacts how the rest of like the crew treats you yeah. and go to talk to them. And like Mass Effect <laughs> is straight up boring. It's so much about the relationships with the other characters, at least for me. Bioshock, <laughs> Bioshock, you're right, is the first one where you like you have a choice about how you're gonna what you're gonna do to these monsters down there. And Bioshock also is such a visually interesting world, just like being in the game. Jones, do you have about Bioshock? I do not know anything about Bioshock. It's like this. It's like this 1950s vision of the future underwater. Cool. Like basically, someone built a like utopia underwater that something went horribly wrong, but you go down there and it's like everything would have been fine except humanity. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, it's really, really interesting. Another game I wanted to bring up, by the way, when we're talking about this, in terms of like going bigger, bigger, bigger. Sometimes smaller is the same thing. Have you guys played Limbo or Inside? No. Oh yeah, they are Those so are great. scary. They're so scary, so scary, and they're just two D side scrollers that are mostly. Black and white. I mean, they are. They oh, are. Limo. My, they both amazing. have. They both have amazing sound design. That's what it is. Which yeah. Is, is what I always say is that the creepiest. That's like they should show those in film school so you can understand the importance of <laughs> yeah, not fucking up totally. your sound. Uh, in a student film. Limbo's but uh, word. I mean, I, yeah. I think to to try to pull that through line, it's just it's 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 back to the place we always get to about talking about video games and about like it's 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 reproducing reality for our amusement in this controlled circumstance and it's just crazy that we whether it's sort of the nintendo aesthetic that's about uh exploration and the reproduction of this sort of joyous emotion or it's about like really starting to chase the philosophical complexity about whether or not we should be murdering one <laughs> another wantonly in a in a in a military context yeah. like that's in the video games and it and it and it and it, and it sort of kicks back to the conversation that brian and i always had like had in the previous video game thing which is just like what a funny answer to video games will rot your brain <laughs> it turns out like no actually down the road they're gonna help uh me and my peers and 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 possibly children process sexuality and issues of philosophy <laughs> and issues of emotion and unfortunately we're gonna have this phase of just blatant misogynistic sexuality but that about tracks with human sort of behavior anyway <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah and, 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 um, and i mean it's interesting you know everything new is gonna <laughs> like like movies gonna rot your brain the beatles are gonna rot your brain tv is gonna rot your brain 
and and a lot of it will but then some of it is really interesting like you know tv uh the wire and gun smoke were on the same thing you know like like they count the same way um you know amos and andy and atlanta in terms of like uh particular complicated discussions of 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 race like they're both tv but but one but you can continue to elevate things and and give it to people whose stories they are uh and and create these really crazy high art back to i mean fucking books man like you know the 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 fantasy novels that i know ben farmer has to this day then the ones that don't get published by anyone else like that in lord of the rings they're different kinds of things you know what i mean and so it's simply a medium by which artists can either express these new things or people can make stupid money <laughs> off of these things um in either case it's like it's like anything else it's it's uh it is a it is a canvas on which to paint and uh and people have been doing it very differently but also kind of the same for a long time and the best versions of course are when you can recognize inherently the artist based on on who it is i'm not sure i can wrap it up any better in terms of getting out of here yeah this thanks great, for buddy. hanging out for another one everybody thanks for thanks for joining us mike it's really fun thanks guys another another great one record Do you, broken. Uh, is there any sort of functional like pitch or plug for your my thing your, your thing i'll just say the thing on this in this context not really that everyone should check out not really but the, but but uh stay tuned for a thing <laughs> and it, it's gonna be fun and exciting <laughs> word our, our humongous audience is for sure uh chasing that down now right <laughs> that isn't already gonna know about it because they know you personally word well thanks for hanging out everybody this is engineering podcast i'm adam i'm brian i'm still mike take it easy everybody